Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley in Exeter, battening down the hatches. Um, not quite the eye of the storm, but not far off. I was doing the stand-up show in Exeter on Thursday night. So we've abandoned plans to do the radio show from a cafe and get lots of people down. Uh, but uh, instead, uh, we'll still be able to bring you um, uh, the best bits of the show. So coming up, we will hear from the Bishop of Exeter uh, and his fear that there's too much talking about levelling up the north and the rural areas in the southwest are being overlooked. We'll also take a look at the politics of the southwest. It's not uh, a straight Labour Tory fight. In fact, in lots of areas, it's a Lib Dem Tory fight. Are Labour really going to step back and let the Lib Dems have a run of it? And in places like Exeter, how much of a threat do the Greens pose? Uh, so we'll um, find out about that as well with Patrick English from YouGov. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. Uh, today, they, they both live in the area, but they joined us uh, from home. Uh, just uh, as everyone keeping safe. So uh, we've got the Times columnist, Alice Thompson, and the educationalist, Sir Michael Barber. Morning, Alice. Morning. Uh, nice to have you with us. And we've also been joined by uh, Sir Michael Barber, educationalist, Chancellor of Exeter University, Chair of the Independent Strategic Review of Policing in England and Wales, and author of the book, Accomplishment. I mean, so we could, we could just discuss all of your jobs, Michael, but, but good morning. <laughs> Okay, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you. Um, I'm in the, the eye of the storm Eunice now as it passes over North Devon. Yes, yeah, so tell, tell us, how is, it, how is it with you this morning? It's, it's, there's been moments of calm, but right now there's been some very, very fierce blasts of wind where you think you're going to lose a tile or see a tree tumble, but so far so good. So keep your fingers crossed for me and for you. Uh, we have had less luck, actually. We've already lost four trees. Okay, wow. See out the window. Where are you? Uh, we're just outside Tiverton, so we've lost, and the, both farms either side of us have lost their electricity. So we're about to go, yeah. I think. So I might go blank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, but there was nothing at seven in the morning. We woke up and thought it was all going to be fine, and then now it's really howling. Yeah, it does seem to be uh, even here in Exeter. It's definitely picking up compared. I mean, first of this morning, I did think there's a lot of fuss about nothing, but de- it definitely exactly. does seem to be. Definitely does seem to be picking up. And there's been a report of uh, uh, the roof of a house has uh, been uh, blown off in Cornwall. So it does feel right. like it's sort of it's hitting Cornwall and then uh, and, and then coming up through. So, yes, yeah, stay safe. And we will try to uh, we will we will we will plough on as best we can until we lose one or both of you. Uh, and we can, there we good news, go. the Met Office in Exeter. So uh, uh, if we've got any complaints, we can go there. I know, but what happens if the Met Office loses power? That's my big concern. Then we'll yeah. just be completely in the dark. We won't be getting any And also we either. have to get there, don't we? That's the problem. I don't think I can get in the car looking no, out of the window, no, I'd say. I wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> but no. it's, a, it's a spectacular British institution, the Met Office. So uh, it's great to have it in Exeter. Exactly right. Exactly right. So I tell you what, let's talk about uh, how, how the South West is doing. And, um, you know, there's been lots of talk about levelling up. We're going to hear later on from the Bishop of Exeter, uh, Robert Atwell, and he talks about his concern about all the talk of levelling up and it's all to do with sort of northern towns. And there's this big unspoken thing of uh, rural poverty, rural isolation, and that just doesn't get talked about, partly because it's it's spread quite thinly rather than in, you know, in pockets of, of, of towns. Um, and so what do you make of that, um, uh, Michael, first of all? Well, um I think I think there is a genuine um, need to think about the southwest as part of the leveling up agenda. The, if you look at the percentage of students that go off from school into higher education, for example, the southwest is one of the lowest performing regions in the country. If you go to Cornwall, I've talked with the chief executive in Cornwall. 
she will tell you that, yes, lots of jobs have come back after the pandemic, but they're generally low-skill, low-paid jobs in the tourist industries. They would like more high-skill uh, and, and higher-paid jobs bringing greater prosperity. So there is a real challenge uh, there. Exeter, the city itself, has been very well-led for a good while now, has a great partnership with the university and has grown well economically, one of, one of the fastest-growing cities in the country. So it's a mixed picture, but but education standards could certainly be higher right across the region, and access to university does need to be enhanced. Um, and what do you think, Alice? So that sort of political idea, I mean, partly, I suppose, is the politics. To some extent, the Conservatives think they've got the southwest in the bag, uh, whereas, you know, all that focus on the red wall uh, is its known. But... But this, you know, if you're if you're levelling up, that does mean that, you know, it should be the whole country, shouldn't it? Well, that's my problem because they're five point six million people in the southwest, and it is Tory a lot of it. But um, I think they they assume that they're going to always win it, partly because the Liberal Democrats have done so badly here recently. But it, it's a very mixed picture in the southwest. So you do get some quite wealthy retirees who come down here, but you also have the highest number of universal credit claimants in work in the area. And yeah. as Michael said, I mean, people just don't go to university, and it. it it's a very odd picture in a way here because you get it's got one of the highest happiness index levels where we are. So I think there's second or third in West Somerset. It's just and North Devon. People are happier. They often they have a very nice quality of life in some ways. But on the other hand, there are no bus routes. There are fewer jobs. There are there's far less education here because Michael said people don't go on to university in the same way. So there's and there's greater poverty often in rural areas. So it, it does need addressing. And I was amazed they did nothing in levelling up about it because the Southwest is such a huge region. It just seems extraordinary that you just sort of knock it off and see it as a kind of tourist destination that you go to, you know, for a couple of weeks in Cornwall in the summer. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> building on Alice's building building on Alice's point, all which I uh, agree with. I think the the other thing that in, in the Next 20 years, there's a real opportunity for the Southwest to be built as the green region with green, green growth, green prosperity, uh, new, new industries coming in, and obviously the, 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 the landscapes, the national parks and so on. So I think, I think thinking of the Southwest as a region that can level up through green growth is a really powerful idea. And, and the Exeter University is obviously at the heart of that. And um, I mentioned your uh, um, your book, Accomplishment, Michael, and it talks about, you know, how to achieve, well, the, the title is How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things. Do you think there's a, I don't like the phrase, but sort of poverty of ambition, but an issue about the Southwest and people from the Southwest, the, the, the aiming for, for more um, uh, ambition is part of the issue as well? I think I think there's I think that do think that's part of the ambition. If you see part of the agenda for the Southwest, one, there are some institutions that have um, defied the stereotype you're describing. So if you look at the Exeter Chiefs rugby team, they came from nowhere 25 years ago to become European champions a couple of years ago. They're a top rugby side because they've built and built and built over a 25 year period. If you look at um, what's happening in St Ives with the Tate uh, the, the, the Tate Gallery there. Uh, and the big building, the kind of cultural sector. So there are, and then there's a spaceport in Newport, in, in, in uh, uh, Newquay. So there's, you can see elements of that degree of ambition, but I think we need more of it. And educational institutions, Exeter University, Plymouth University, Exeter's campus in Cornwall, these these can be places that develop that aspiration. I do think there's there's more to do there, absolutely. 
Yeah, it's interesting to see if uh, there are, like I said, there's those pockets. A, a lot of these things, I suppose, it's sometimes, you know, it's not overnight, is it? It does take a really long time, uh, whether it's, you know, the, I don't know, the Eden Project or, like you're saying, uh, Tate's yeah. and Ives. That sort of thing just takes a long time. I mean, the time. problem is, yeah, but I think the main problem is that you always talk about the north and the south or the north and the southeast. And everyone always forgets about the southwest. So it's a kind of bizarre situation when you've got HS2, but you had... I mean, we've just got the new railway line, but until now, you've had one line going down to Cornwall. And if that line goes down, which it does regularly, uh, you've got a major problem and you've got a whole area of Britain that just is knocked out. In one... Yes, well, I, th- I think, I think the, 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 point, the point she's making about, uh, about it, it's uh, the connecting aspiration and, uh, and poverty and the challenges in the region are absolutely right. And I think that in the end, you, where, wherever you are, you've got to we don't know what the government, how the government's levelling up agenda will develop in relation to the South West, but the South West can take this on itself. It doesn't have to wait for a government programme. You know, remember years ago, Keith Joseph saying the first words a baby learns in this country, what's the government going to do about it? Um, and <laughs> but if the South West wants to change itself, it can do that. We've got fantastic institutions. I've mentioned Exeter University a few times, uh, the, the, the Exeter Chiefs, Plymouth University, uh, the, the, you mentioned the Eden Project. There's all these institutions that are fantastic. And once you get a cluster of them, you can see some real growth. So I think, yes, it would be great for it to be part of the levelling up programme. But in the meantime, the Southwest can take responsibility for itself and show people what it's like to be the greenest region in Britain, for example. Uh, let's move on, because I want to another one of your, your hats on, actually, Michael. Um, uh, let's talk about the police. As I mentioned, you're the... Uh, um, you're chairing the Independent Strategic Review of Policing in England and Wales. I mean, clearly the big the big policing story in recent days has been the uh, resignation of Dame Cressida Dick. The Times reporting today, exclusive story, that she suggested random spot checks of officers' phones and social media accounts uh, to uncover inappropriate police behaviour in a last-ditch uh, effort to save her job. I mean, obviously didn't uh, work out in the end because uh, Sadiq Khan uh, made clear that he'd sort of lost uh, confidence in it. How... How bad is the situation in policing in England and Wales today, Michael? I th- I think that there's I think it's 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 very disturbing. Um, there, there are the first thing I want to say is there are lots and lots of fantastic police officers doing really hard, noble, thoughtful work all over the country, all day, every day, and we should uh, uh, honour them. Um, so, and they themselves, I've spent time on the front line with police as part of this inquiry. They themselves are feeling. The, the, the pressures of the current state of affairs. So I think the culture does need to be changed. There are clearly some cases which are absolutely out of order and they need to be tackled vigorously and clearly. And sometimes that hasn't happened in the recent past. You need leadership from the top, uh, Cressida Dick's successor, but also the, and the other 42 police forces around England and Wales. And then you need to also recognise the positives and uh, and have exemplars of the right kind of police behaviour, which happen every day and we hardly ever hear about. And then finally, I think people are frustrated, ordinary people are frustrated that police aren't doing some of the basics right. After 10 years of austerity, they withdrew from communities. Community policing uh, dropped away in, in, in much of the country. Uh, police weren't even able to follow up on a burglary. They just give you a crime number and you go to the insurance company. Uh, and people felt that the police weren't able to do the basics. And that, so, so that I think there's two parts of changing culture. One is getting the basics right. Two is challenging these exceptionally bad cases and making sure they're dealt with thoroughly. And then finally, 
uh, we need a complete rethink of police learning, development, training, which if you talk to ordinary police officers, they say is pretty poor and really needs to change because that's how you'll change the culture for the long run. Have you? Because I mean, a lot of people have been quite shocked by uh, some of the revelations of the culture within the police. You know, the, the sharing of appalling messages, uh, racist, homophobic, misogynistic messages. And then, and then, you know, the, the cases of sharing photos of of uh, murder victims and so on. Did you come across things that shocked you when you were looking into the police? Well, those those things are genuinely shocking, um, and they need to be condemned and dealt with very vigorously and I think the vast majority of police officers would condemn them and find them shocking too so I I, I personally didn't I mean, if, if I go on a visit to a police station I'm not going to see that kind of uh, that, that kind of thing but I do know there are a lot of that there, there are other things that aren't that but they're disturbing so police officers end up having to clean up clear up mental health cases where literally some mental health case falls out onto the street because the health and social services uh, aren't on top of it. Uh, they end up spending a lot of time following up missing persons. Uh, they spend something like three million person hours a year chasing down missing persons. That's enough person hours to police the whole of North Yorkshire. Um, and of, obviously they have to follow up a missing person, but if the social services, if the care homes for, for, for young teenagers, which is most of the missing persons, were really operationally effective, the police wouldn't have to spend too much time on that. And the public want the police spending time on the things they care about, policing the streets, preventing crime, following up crime, uh, and so on. And at the moment, it, things aren't quite right. So our, our report coming out on the 8th of March will set out a kind of 10, 20-year agenda for transforming all that, including the police culture. It would be good to get you back on uh, when that report comes out. Um, uh, Alice, I know we've, we've talked before about um, uh, what was happening in the police. I mean, do you think that, I mean, clearly it wasn't enough to save her job, but this idea of spot checks of uh, police officers' phones, what do you make of that? I can see where it's coming from, but I think the misconduct process is just taking too long. So I think that actually what I would do is say if this is discovered, and I think random checks could be too much for the police. I think it is very invasive. But if this is discovered, the police officers should be out really fast. And they're quite obvious cases where if you've actually tweeted or you've sent a WhatsApp message or and they, they should be quite clear cut a lot of them and it's rather extraordinary that a lot of these police officers stay in the force after they've done something like this and I think that needs to be cleared up very fast and I also think as Michael said I mean they just need to have better education so when these police officers start they know exactly what they can and can't do and you shouldn't be putting anything at all into a WhatsApp message that's in any way offensive I mean no one should be but the police of all you know really do need to be above it because actually they're policing what everyone else says online as well now. I suppose it's that thing, isn't it? it, it, You need to change the culture so that those people who might be sent a message like that feel like the right thing to do is to report it and pass it on rather than um, than, uh, cover it up. Um, uh, Just an underlying point. We in Britain since 1829 and the Met Police was founded have had a, a, a notion of policing... Oh, I think we've lost Michael there. I think we, <laughs> we were doing so well with the weather. We were doing so well with the weather. We'll get well, worse. Well, it is getting worse. The, the lights here keep flickering too. Um, we'll let you both go so that you can go and batten down the hatches. Uh, Alice Thompson, Times columnist, thanks very much for joining us uh, from just outside Tiverton. And uh, Sir Michael Barber, uh, f- um, who is the Chancellor of Exeter University. We're in Exeter this morning. He's also chairing the Independent Strategic Review of Policing in England and Wales, which comes out uh, on March the 8th, as he mentioned. And maybe we'll try and get him back when the weather's slightly better. Uh, and we'll catch up with him on uh, on, <laughs> on that too. 
to Michael Barber and Alice Thompson then. Of course, you can read Alice at the Times every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Box and subscribe. Now, still to come, we'll hear from the Bishop of Exeter and Patrick English from YouGov. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, uh, we're down in Exeter and uh, there's something very exciting going on at the cathedral. You can go and see the moon inside the cathedral. So I went there last night and this is what happened. So I'm now outside Exeter Cathedral. There are crowds of people gathering uh, expectantly to get into the cathedral. I'm joined by Jonathan Greener, the Dean of Exeter Cathedral. Good evening. Good evening. What are people waiting for? They're waiting to come into the cathedral to see our art installation, the Museum of the Moon by Luke Jerram. This is very exciting. Um, Shall we go in before they go in? We certainly shall, otherwise you won't get in. Go on then, you lead the way, you lead the way. So we're going through the door into the cathedral, which is sort of all sort of blue lights. Oh, wow, look at that. It's a great sight when you come in here. It's incredible. Isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a scale model of the moon. It's seven metres across. And, of course, it looks fantastic against this setting of this wonderful ceiling in Exeter Cathedral. So let's move across a bit so we can see it. Oh, they're looking through the arches. That's incredible. The way it's just sort of suspended there. I suppose, yeah, because it's darker, you can't see the cables, you can't see the cables and how it's hanging there. And with the blue lights all up in the, the roof of the cathedral, it's incredible. So uh, we've been thrilled with it here because people from all over Devon are coming to see it. One of the reasons we've got it here is to try and uh, bring more people in to admire uh, the art, but also to bring them back to the cathedral yeah. after lockdown. We've had a, a quiet period for visitors, and also it's bringing in all sorts of people who don't normally come here. There'll be groups of beavers and cubs and scouts. There'll be um, lots of uh, adults. I mean, the children love it. They, we, they've been lying on the floor admiring this, as you can imagine. Yeah. And how many people have been in to see it? Well, about 500 an hour when we've been open. So it's marvellous. Normally in February, you know, there's hardly anyone trickling through Exeter. And particularly, we've lost all our overseas visitors at the moment. But people are uh, are fighting for tickets almost. It's marvellous. It is incredible. It is absolutely incredible. And... um how is it affected by the weather? We've obviously, you know, we're meeting on Thursday night. The storm is coming. We've decided to close our doors tomorrow. Uh, I didn't want gales coming in here and destroying our moon. Yes. That will ruin the moon. It will also ruin our visitor experience <laughs> and our visitor numbers subsequently. Because presumably, I mean, this is how, how old is how old is the cathedral? Uh, about eight hundred years. It's been through some storms and things in the past, but it's presumably slightly prone to drafts and strong winds. One of the good things about the cathedral during COVID has been its natural ventilation, I have to say. Um, we're expecting the cathedral can with, withstand the, the buffeting, but our doors won't. The electric doors don't work when it's windy, so therefore we thought it was better just to shut the cathedral till lunchtime tomorrow. Well, it's, it's terrific, and I'm really glad to be able to come and see it, especially to come and see it in the dark. We're thrilled you've come, thank you very Jonathan, much. Jonathan, thank you so much for, for, for showing me the moon. It's a slightly, slightly strange question. What do you make of the moon? The moon is absolutely stunning. It's incredible. Well, what a what a picture it is. It's fabulous, isn't it? Did you? What did you think when you walk, when you first walked in? It was uh, absolutely awesome. <laughs> That's perfect. What about you? What did you think when you first walked in? Yeah, it was it's really good. Yeah, it's their second time. They 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 wow. came in the daytime and yeah. then they wanted to come again uh, at night time to see it lit up. Can I ask you what you think about the moon? It's bigger than I thought it would be. It's massive, isn't it? It's huge. Can I just ask you what you think of the uh, installation? Oh, 
I think it's fantastic. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes. I don't. I was wondering how they made it and how long it took, but I'm, I guess we could find out from the I website. Think, I think it's a big balloon, apparently, which they have to keep constantly inflated. Oh, right. Yes, it's fantastic. Yeah, it really is quite something inside the cathedral. Uh, so then uh, I also caught up with the Bishop of Exeter, Robert Atwell, and I started off by asking him, why have you got a great big moon in the cathedral? Well, it is absolutely fantastic. I've been in there myself. I mean, it's, um, do you know, Exeter Cathedral is the biggest building in Devon. And I suppose I and my colleagues who uh, look after the cathedral, um, we're just, the cathedral is owned by the people of Devon. Uh, and we're just the custodians for it. It's a wonderful, fantastic space. And uh, just hundreds, thousands of people are coming in to look at it. I mean, and we've become aware of well, just the majesty of the and the infinity uh, of space uh, that we're they're part of. And just, I suppose, we're aware of our own humanity and just how small we are in this universe. I, I should say, Matt, actually, of course, that as bishop, um, I'm really glad to have a dean who looks after the cathedral, but my responsibilities are, are much wider than simply the cathedral because uh, I oversee the Church of England right across the whole of Devon. Well, I was going to ask you about that. It's obviously, not every church can have a replica of the moon in it to try and get people in. Yes. How, how is your congregation doing in terms of numbers? And I'm quite interested in what impact the past couple of years have had. I mean, it's always been very difficult for people who, who do have faith, who wanted to go to church, and for large parts of that, they haven't been able to because of the pandemic. What, what is, what's happened in the past couple of years in terms of the numbers, and, and what more do you think needs to be done to try and get people back to the church? Well, well in Devon, we've got over 600 churches. A, a, a lot of them are simply fantastic medieval churches, and some of them are in very remote places. Um, our churches are part of the English landscape. They're a national heritage, and in my view, they actually require national support. But they're also communities, um, you know, of people and they need to be at the heart of their communities. And I, I suppose what the pandemic has exposed is actually some of the fractures uh, in English society. Uh, and that's been a great concern to me as bishop. But I'm also so proud of the way um, our church communities have responded in this time of need. I mean, I've seen, I've seen that with my own eyes. I've seen food banks in church porches. I've seen people visiting the housebound and isolated. I mean, people reaching out hands of friendship, and I think that has been so important, particularly because in the shadow of this pandemic has been an epidemic of mental health problems. And we all know that isolation is one of the really difficult things that human beings have to cope with, because uh, it can sometimes send, you know, put people on the edge. Like you said, if people are isolated, I mean, they're not just sort of isolated socially. In many cases, in parts of Devon, they'll be isolated pretty physically too. If things like bus services go, the post office shuts, the pub shuts, the shop shuts, you know, what, what was a very nice chocolate box village is suddenly actually a pretty grim place to be stuck. Well, you're, no, you're absolutely right. And in some villages, the only building, public building, left the good old church, the medieval church, stuck there. Um, and actually... The reality is, uh, if we don't use it, we lose it. It's as simple as that. So I certainly want our church buildings to be at the heart of their communities and used by the communities as they always have been. That's really, really important. Um, and, I mean, our, our churches, they're also holy places, places of prayer. And actually, that I, in the pandemics, they've been places of spiritual recovery as people have 
recovered from this pandemic because actually it's been a very traumatic time for loads of people. You mentioned that you thought that the, the network of churches around the country should have national support. Is that something that you're sort of pursuing? You think that, but I suppose if it's if the the church building does end up becoming shop, pharmacy, drop off, you know, community centre, whatever, is that what you're sort of looking at? Is do you think there should be sort of state funding to try and keep the church? Well, I actually do. Uh, I really do think that's important because we have a wonderful heritage which we're rightly proud of. I mean, can you imagine that the English countryside denuded of its churches, its spires and towers pointing heavenward? They're really important. And of course, they're the repository of community memories. You just walk through a graveyard and you see it all. I mean, why is it you know, as a generation, you know, we're really concerned with where we belong. We're con- people are concerned with their roots. Um, I mean, I'm fascinated by the TV programme um, who do you think you are? And people are looking for roots and that sense of belonging. And I believe that actually that's one of the things that the the church can actually do. It gives a sense of community, which is even bigger than their family and network of friends, a sense of belonging. And that's really important for self-worth and self-identity. You, um, I know you've been a bishop since 2014, but you joined the House of Lords last year. Um, how have you found that, suddenly being part of the, the, the legislature as well? Well, actually, I've been a bishop a bit long. I've been a bishop 14 years, but I only came to Exeter. You're quite Exeter. right, don't worry. And, uh, and as you rightly say, only the other day I was uh, privileged to take a seat in the House of Lords. So really, it's really early days for me, Matt. I'm finding my feet. Um, I suppose... I'm trying to be, I'd like to be a voice really for rural and coastal communities. One of the things that concerns me at the moment and the government's so-called levelling up agenda is the fact we hear an awful lot about the great north-south divide, but I think there's another divide and that's the urban-rural divide. And because rural poverty is, it just doesn't appear on government indexes of deprivation mainly because it's small and in little pockets. So um, what I would hope to be is to be a voice for those people. I mean, uh, that's what I I mean. Like, for example, only last week in Parliament, I was concerned reading a a health uh, report about NHS dentistry. And I was really concerned to see that the worst place in the United Kingdom for NH dentistry is Devon. And here it is, there are, at the moment, there are no vacancies in NHS dental practices for children or adults. And I think that is shameful, I really do. So I would hope to be a voice for those. Another thing I suppose I would say is, do you know, I'd like to speak up for the farming community. Do you know, Devon is, is wonderful land. We've got some fantastic farmers. And yet, why is it that we don't celebrate that? I'm so proud of our farming community and what they are doing. And yet year on year, we see the amount of production of food here goes down and down and we're importing more and more stuff. So we talk about our care for the environment, but we then fly in all this food. It just doesn't add up. I think we ought to be proud and celebrating and supporting the agricultural community. So as Bishop of Exeter, I'd like to say three cheers for our farmers. Very good. Very good. I wonder. I wonder if some of some of that, particularly the rural uh, deprivation uh, and isolation, which gets overlooked, because large. I think you know, apart from the city of Exeter, the rest of Devon is conservative. It's not where elections are going to be decided. 
you know, it's all the focuses on the Red Bull seats and all that sort of thing. And there's a, there's a sort of neglect of traditional conservative rural heartlands um, because that's not seen as where the 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 fight is or the the electoral gain is. Never mind the people who are there living and um, suffering with that. Well, maybe don't forget there's Plymouth too. Plymouth, uh, yeah. Plymouth is part of this diocese and historically part of the county of Devon. That's a blinking big city and a wonderful city too. And um, um, and one of the things that I concerned about is of course here in Devon um, we have important significant military establishments the Royal Navy is in Plymouth and just down the road from where I'm speaking to you now uh, we got Lindstrom which is the head of the Royal Marines so I'm particularly conscious at the moment here we are every time I turn on the news the stuff about Ukraine and everything else do you know a lot of our military families here in this county are very anxious at this moment so again I just would want to support them and to be a voice for them in this time. Uh, just finally, I wonder whether um, what you've made of entering the, the murky world of politics, have you found everyone to be sort of truthful and honest and willing to abide by the rules? <laughs> Actually, I've been so impressed in the House of Lords by my colleagues on both sides of the House, as you know, the, the bishops sit on one particular place and the courtesy that has been afforded and actually the respect uh, that's been done and the way people interact with one another and I, I find that really important because actually um, perhaps one of the fault lines of politics as we know is when people have been economical with the truth and it's wonderful when I actually hear ministers and other people members in the House of Lords who stand up and sometimes even say they don't know the answer and they would find out and when people say that um, my respect for them goes up. And if you bump into the Prime Minister in the corridors of power, what, what might you have a word with him about the importance of honesty and truth? I would like to say, well, well, Boris, why don't you come to Devon? I'd like to show you and meet you some of the really important people in my life and should be important to you. <laughs> Bishop Robert Atwell, thank you so much for joining us on Times Radio. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. The Bishop of Exeter, Robert Atwell, there. Now, it's really interesting, the politics of Exeter and the wider southwest. So uh, we thought we'd take a look at that now with a couple of political experts. Two interesting things which are going on in Exeter. Uh, politically, it's one of the most um, uh, urban parts of the region. Uh, the Labour Party has held it for 25 years with Ben Bradshaw as the MP in the City Council too. But the Green Party uh, seem to be making real inroads. And the, so the Labour Party has sort of faced two ways, trying to see off the threat to the Conservatives, but also uh, to keep up their Green credentials. Alongside that, this week we've got reports uh, that the Labour Party and the Lib Dems are entering some sort of unofficial electoral pact. The Lib Dems would give Labour a free run in seats which they were most likely to win, places like Exeter. But out in the more rural parts of uh, England, out in rural Devon, uh, the Lib Dems will be given a free run. Labour won't make an effort because it's the Lib Dems who are most likely to beat the Conservatives. Well, will this work? What does all this mean for the politics of the South West? Uh, we're joined now by Dr Hannah Bunting, Associate Lecturer at the University of Exeter's Politics Department. Hi, Hannah. Good morning. Uh, I hope you're safe and well and not being too battered by this uh, weather. Uh, we've also got Patrick English, who is the Political Research Manager at the Pollster YouGov. Hi, Patrick. Good morning and hello, Hannah. <laughs> Hannah, um, talk us through, first of all, the political landscape of uh, Devon, this sort of sea of blue with an island of red in the middle. Yeah, so we've got um, 
uh, sort of, uh, let me just quickly try and count. I think there's only two uh, constituencies. No, there's three constituencies where the Lib Dems came second, I believe, in uh, Devon. And Labour were quite close to them up on third. So I think this uh, sort of pact that they might have, if Labour don't stand, then that could really help uh, the Liberal Democrats in Newton Abbott and Torridge and West Devon particularly. But if they do stand, even if they don't concentrate too much of their sort of uh, election campaign spend there, then they're probably still going to pick up quite a few votes. So I think it really sort of depends how this pact plays out of uh, whether it's going to have an impact or not. Uh, Patrick, we talk about pacts. Very, very rarely do they sort of happen formally. To mm. what extent is it down to the parties? And actually, is it down to voters? Voters are quite smart mm -hmm. and savvy. And actually, what we saw is the comparison is sort of 1997. Tories have been in power for a long time. Uh, mm. Although um, uh, Tony Blair obviously won you know, landslide for New Labour, actually, it was the Lib Dems who, who made big gains across the South West because mm -hmm. in lots of these seats, if you, quote, want to get the Tories out... You have mm -hmm. to vote Lib Dem. So is it down to the parties to sort of sort this out? Or do you think actually voters are quite quite savvy about these things? Yes, well, I think this is something important to remember is that voters are very complex animals and they don't often do what they're told, <laughs> particularly by political parties. So perhaps an even a more recent example of a, of a pact that was formalised is, of course, the Unite to Remain pact in 2019. And a lot of the analysis that we've done um, for the British General Election book uh, suggested that that was quite ineffective, actually, at achieving its own aims in terms of giving more seats to parties involved in the pact. And in fact, a lot of the time we saw voters didn't go for the so-called nominated Unite to Remain party and they switched to somebody else instead. So as much as parties can get sort of their ducks in a row and perhaps pull candidates out of seats, not stand entirely or, or, or lower their sort of campaign, if you like, Voters don't always respond in the way that you think they will to that. So it's, it's quite a complex operation to make these things happen. And Hannah, um, as well as you, there's this sort of, you know, the issue with the, the, the Lib Dems and the Tories, uh, there's also in Exeter in particular, uh, the Green uh, issue and concerns speaking to some uh, local councillors in, uh, in Exeter. Um, this, this Labour try to sort of face both ways. They want to, they're running the council, they want to see off uh, the Conservatives. But the Green Party is quite strong. It's a sort of uh, metropolitan smart university town. You know, you could compare it to uh, Brighton or Bristol or Norwich, some of those other places where the Greens have got a foothold. And actually, you know, as a result, they, they create some tension there. The Labour Party try to do green things, including these low traffic neighbourhoods, uh, which the Green Party like. But actually, that then becomes a stick for the, the Tories to beat them with. Um, is this something that in a, in a sort of longer term trend we'll be seeing that the, the Green Party making inroads in places where tradition, you know, cities where Labour have traditionally been dominant? Yeah, we could well do. I mean, the Green Party have done well to kind of, as you say, like pick up some of those votes that might be disaffected uh, Labour voters, or they could also be disaffected old Liberal Democrat voters, as the Lib Dems used to be seen kind of as a protest vote uh, from some people. Uh, but now they might be more aligned with the Green Party. And, you know, as the Salience of climate change increases, you know, during COP26, the Green Party were polling the best that they ever had almost. So as that rises, then, yeah, um, they are going to grow sort of in popularity. And whether that will mean trouble for Labour is kind of remains to be seen because it depends where those voters are coming from, really. If they're not coming from Labour, 
then uh, it probably won't be at the detriment of Labour. But if they're moving from Labour to Green, then that's when they could be in trouble. Obviously, the first big electoral test we've got uh, imminently uh, across the country is the, uh, the local elections in May. Patrick, what, um, what should we be looking out for there, do you think? Yeah, I think what, what Hannah says is, is exactly right. It really does depend where you look and where the votes are coming from with the Greens as, 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 as to whom they are threatening. Because we've seen since 2019 in particular, a lot of sort of news, news wire flashes of Green gain from Conservatives in a lot of the sort of rural areas, particularly in the southeast. So I would be looking for, for, for two things in, in terms of what's going to happen with the, with, with the local elections. I'd be looking for more evidence that the Green Party are indeed taking votes and taking seats from all parties all around the country, which they have been doing for the past couple of years. And also, I'd be looking at some of these councils, some of these marginal councils that we talk about, particularly there's some in London, called Wandsworth being one of them, where, where, where Labour are kind of on the cusp of perhaps taking them or just recently lost them to the Conservatives. Can they take them back? And that, I think, will give us a good sense of electorally where the Labour Party are right now and are they recovering some of the sort of the electoral damage and the brand damage that was done sort of around sort of between 2017 and, and, and 19 in particular? Uh, and Hannah, what are you um, as a, at the University of Exeter Politics Department? What what is it that your what trends is it that you're particularly uh, keeping an eye on that you know we can all we can all basically copy and then make ourselves seem much more wise? Uh, what 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 are you particularly uh, interested in at the moment? Uh, well, I mean, my research on marginal constituencies, I tend to look out for not just the gap between the first and second place party, but what's going on between second and third and third and fourth, fourth and fifth and so on. Because once we see kind of disturbance in those, say, fourth and fifth parties, if they completely drop out their support or if they rise in support, then that has a massive effect on who is first and second and in our electoral system, therefore, who gets the seat in the end you know so that is uh, something really interesting to be looking out for and also 2019 was an unusual election uh, mm. you know a lot of people say that they lent their vote to the conservatives and if they're not going to lend that again for a second term you know where that will uh, play out and who they will then lend their vote to at the second time around is going to be really interesting for sure. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing, uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 